This, this is the Our Auto Expert Podcast. Find us on air, online, on mobile, and on your smart speaker. Please subscribe at ourautoexpert.com. Our Auto Expert. Our Auto Expert. Our Auto Expert. Our Auto Expert. Now, here's the host of Our Auto Expert. Our Auto Expert. Nick Miles. Locally created, nationally celebrated from the northwest to the southeast, this is America's Car Radio Show. If it has a throttle, we'll feature it on air, online, on mobile, or on smart speaker. This is our auto expert. I am your host, Nick Miles. And uh, this week, Truck Girl Jen has been transformed into John Vincent from US News and World Report. Um, we should probably come up with a snappy title for you, John. Was that a good trade or a bad trade? No, oh, I'm happy with it. Okay. But Jen, Jen is unfortunately indisposed this weekend. She's probably mad that she can't be here um, and use the Truck Girl Jen handle. I don't think Truck Girl Jen works for you, but uh, and I don't think truck, truck Guy John either works for you. You're not really I, a truck I'm, guy, are I'm you? I'm Oregon's car guy on Twitter. Oh, Oregon's car guy. There we go. Oregon's car guy. Uh, this week's show is uh, very packed. In fact, uh, Jen, who uh, uh, got to talk to me on the phone this morning before we started the show, was explaining to me that I won't have time to breathe this morning. So uh, I should <laughs> get all the breathing in right now. Uh, we we have a lot of uh, new stuff to talk about, including uh, some more about the vehicles that you should have in your driveway, uh, the ones that uh, John and I have been driving this week. Perry Stern from MSN and our auto expert will be joining us to talk about the new Nissan GTR Track Edition. Uh, John is going to talk about uh, the uh, auto loan and what fits your uh, your lifestyle. Uh, the new Chevy Suburban just was announced. Uh, we're going to get to talk to uh, Acura about their reveal at the LA Auto Show. Also, Patrick McKenna joining us uh, to talk about the new Mini Electric and some buying incentives. Uh, I understand Oregon uh, is going to be one of the best states to buy this vehicle in which probably follows that Washington will be as well. Um, Chicago, we don't know. We'll find out uh, how it'll do for you in Chicago. Also, we get to talk to the president, Viva La President, T.J. Higgins of Bridgestone. Uh, they have some new inventions that they're rolling out at the Tokyo Olympics that uh, bring the bus actually right next to the curb. It's very ingenious. I watched it happen in uh, Tokyo a few weeks ago, so I thought we'd better have them on. Um, it's a very cool curbless barrier so the bus comes right to the curbside without scratching the wheels. Uh, so there's a lot to talk about. Plus, road trips for the holiday. Uh, where should you be going? What should you remember? Best cars for dogs and uh, drinking and driving. It's not recommended. Uh, we'd like to make sure that we keep your mind on uh, avoiding drink drivers on the road as well. Boy, whew, there's a lot of stuff going on in the show. What have you been driving, John? I've been driving the new uh, Volvo XC90 Inscription Plug-In Hybrid. And it's got a lot of power, hasn't it? It's got a lot of power. Uh, f is it 400 horsepower off the top of my head? A little over 400, I believe. Right. I, I think that's the first thing. A lot of people think plug-in hybrids. They think environmental. They think green. They think saving the planet. They don't think more power, and that often comes with it. And a lot of the new plug-in hybrids are going the power route rather than the efficiency route. Um, sports car drivers, race car drivers do enjoy hybrids because they give them that instantaneous torque a lot of times because on the low end it has the electric engine kicking in. And then when you have the plug-in version, it actually allows you to just do that extra trip on just electricity alone. On the Volvo, it's 18 miles on electric alone. That's and pretty good. 
that covers a lot of people's commutes. I think we're going to start to see uh, those sort of numbers increasing to around 40, 50 for the plug-in hybrids. Uh, I noticed that um, Toyota just brought out their RAV4, which has, I think, somewhere around 40. Um, a lot of cars still have around 20, which yeah, seems the, to be the... Pacific the, is up in the 30s. Uh, they're... It's growing, which is great. Isn't it interesting to you that Chrysler have not uh, monopolized that Pacifica platform for other vehicles? It seems like just a no-brainer. Well, they kind of did this year by coming out with the low end of the, of the Pacifica called the Voyager, bringing the Voyager name back to a uh, lower-end version of the minivan. But that platform has a lot of potential. Um, and and yet still there's only one, really one sort of vehicle on it, which is the minivan. Correct. Uh, I don't know why there's not an SUV or a truck. Uh, you know, a lot of times these minivans make great car trucks like the uh, Honda Ridgeline, which is sort of a car truck. It's really a pilot with the back end taken off. Why? I, th- I would have thought Chrysler could do a little truck, you know, which wasn't really off-road capable. It was just sort of more for the design. I think just wait. This is probably the, the answer. <laughs> I've been there. waiting too long for them to come up with really cool cars. I mean, middle, mid-size SUVs, compacts, subcompacts. I mean, they have all the opportunities to do those, and they haven't really. They have stuff in the family. They have quite a bit of Jeep product, which would be an obvious you know, spin over for those guys to make a Dodge piece. Well, the, uh, the one of the fastest-growing segments of the SUV market is performance SUVs. Right. And, you know, even the new RAV4 plug-in hybrid has 300 horsepower. That's the, I think it's the most horsepower they've ever had in a RAV4. Well, that's not a huge barrier there. <laughs> <laughs> 184 before that or something, wasn't it? 187? I think it's around 200 or something. Right. So, uh, yeah, I notice every time I go anywhere like Detroit, I'll uh, I'll call them up and say, hey, I'm just – I'd like to borrow a car and do some cool reviews. You have a better fleet out there. And they all say, would you like a Trackhawk? I said, well, the last three times I've come, I've had a Trackhawk. So I probably should try something else uh, to drive. Yeah, they, they try and uh, palm you off on there. It's interesting, too, that Dodge have not made a uh, Durango with 700 horsepower, which is a Dodge, and you'd expect that to happen since they already have a 700 horsepower engine. Yeah, but that Durango SRT is still a lot of fun. Yes, what is it? Four hundred eighty-five, four eighty-five, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's plenty enough for us. We 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 witness people have fun in that, and also do some stupid things in that a few years ago. Perhaps, perhaps. Yeah, this it's very hard not to do stupid things when you have that much horsepower in it. I uh, I was driving the Charger, uh, new four-door Charger Hellcat in San Diego and Sacramento this week. Uh, doing some TV, and of course every uh, TV station wants you to do a burnout of the parking lot as you leave at the end of the segment, and and I did, and then the engineering department was complaining that now they had tire marks all the way across the back lot, and I was like, you wanted me to do a burnout, you can't have it both ways, sorry. When I was in the green capital of the world, LA, uh, last <laughs> month, they gave me a um, Charger widebody scat pack, which is, I like it better than the Hellcat. Yes, because it's controllable, right? It's controllable, and it's a whole lot less money. Yeah. It's uh, 40000 starting as versus to sixty nine, I think. And it's like four, 30, still 485 horsepower. You could actually get another charger for that price because they start at under, under $30,000. So technically, you could get another charger if you went the scat pack. You could get a charger scat pack, which starts at forty, and then a regular charger instead of just one health. And pack. even the regular V6 charger comes with 300 horsepower. Yeah, it just doesn't. It's not sad at all. It's quite enjoyable. All right. Uh, I have been driving the brand-new Honda Civic Si, which... Um, once they brought out their Type R, I was thinking, 
why would you care to drive it? But actually, it's still as good as it always has been. Reliable, fun to drive. It's just the manual transmission in traffic gets a little bothersome. But at the same time, spinning the front tires doesn't. Uh, still more to come on the show, including find out about the new GTR Track Edition. You're listening to Our Auto Expert. Locally created and nationally celebrated. You can catch up with previous episodes of the show on our website, ourautoexpert.com. You can hear all the past shows, see our automotive videos, and read insider car stories about your next ride. You'll find it all at ourautoexpert.com. One of the guys that writes for the site is our site and is an integral part of the functioning is Perry Stern. He's joining us on the phone. Um, Perry, we actually mentioned, uh, John mentioned, John Vincent's uh, co-hosting today, he mentioned that uh, you, him, and I together would be a quorum of our local press association so we could make some uh, make some decisions. I guess that's true. We could redo the entire thing. Right. So let's start with bylaws. No. All right. You've been driving yes, exactly. the <laughs> you've been driving the uh, the GTR Track Edition from Nissan. Uh, this is starting to become one of the uh, older sports cars um, that hasn't had a major refresh in several years, but they seem to be doing a lot more with it and a lot of iterations about it and improving it immensely. So even though it has that V6 engine around uh, 500, mid 500 to over 600 horsepower, depending on what trim level you get, they're still sort of doing an awful lot with it to make it a cool vehicle. Is the track edition that you were driving uh, a cool version of the GTR? Of course. And, you know, I, I drove the GTR when they first brought it to America however many years ago it was. I think it was about 10 years ago. And it blew everybody away. It was unlike anything we'd ever had. And the new one, you know, looks very much like that original one. Uh, the interior hasn't changed all that much. But you're right. They've upped the power. They've upped the price. Uh, the one that I drove uh, did have the 600-horsepower Nismo engine in it. Uh, but it also retailed for about $162,000. Uh, that's a big jump from when it first came out. It was about seventy-five, eighty grand. Right. Uh, but uh, but you get a lot of car. There's no question. It, one of the things about the, the GTR that I always noticed is they've never refined the ride to be comfortable. In fact, your backside does get a little sore after about three hours of driving in that vehicle, but maybe you shouldn't be driving such a high-performance car for three hours. Well, this is also, we have to remember, is this is the track edition. So the track edition is set up, as it's called, for the track. So it's going to be stiffer. Uh, we noticed that, you know, not only is it stiff, it's also very loud inside. And not so much from engine noise, but road noise. Uh, those tires are very sticky, so they're great for cornering. But, you know, when you're cruising along, you kind of have to yell in order to have a normal conversation in the car. So uh, what, so what so you're it, telling it's me... It's not what, a car that... What you're telling me is that taking the speed bumps in my neighborhood at 45 was not a good idea in this car. No, you got to do it a little faster, and that way you just actually get some air, and when it's in the air, it's quieter. <laughs> you're just uh, <laughs> you're making us all sound really irresponsible, Perry. Yes, we're, we're, we're just kidding, just kidding. We always go, you know, 30 miles an hour everywhere we go. No, the, actual, the, one, thing I re the one thing I really like about this car is while it's it's got the performance of an exotic sports car, the interior is actually pretty comfortable. Uh, they've got these really nice Recaro seats inside, uh, and rather than being those very form-fitting Recaro um, seats that a lot of the high-performance cars have that can actually be a, rather uncomfortable to sit in, these are actually leather-trimmed. They look really nice, and it's comfortable. 
I do, uh, I do notice the with these of course. with these vehicles, what they manage to do is things like um, you, you would think that they can't get much more out of engine and out of speed, but every time they do a sort of new addition of this, they can do. And e little things like I mean, giving a carbon fiber roof or uh, you know carbon fiber wheels lightens it up enough that you can get considerably more speed and more performance than you did in, in a previous edition. Exactly. I mean, it, and that's what it's all about. I mean, it, it costs a lot of money to create a whole new platform and a whole new uh, vehicle. And, you know, what they've done, what a lot of other com car companies do as well, is they just keep reiterating on this same model. And it's not a bad model at all. I mean, it's very quick. Uh, the the uh, fun thing to do with this car is at a stoplight, if you're first at the stoplight, when the light turns green, you can be at the speed limit and look back in your rearview mirror, and most of the other cars haven't actually moved yet. What was the speed limit? That quick. Oh, uh, 40. Okay. 50, uh, 60, something. <laughs> so, so Perry, uh, one of the complaints about the GTR has always been that it's more like driving a video game than a sports car. With the track edition, do you still have that feeling? See, I don't know that I would call that a complaint. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's something to be said about driving a car. And when I first drove this car 10 years ago, I remember thinking that exact same thing is – it was doing things that a car shouldn't really be able to do. We were going around a track at that time, and the G meter was showing that we were achieving more than one G in the corners, uh, which shouldn't be possible in a streetcar. But, you know, you're right. It, does, it, it doesn't have a lot of the emotion that you would get, say, driving a Lamborghini or something that has a really throaty, uh, big engine sound. Uh, this one is very, very much like a computer. It's very technical. Uh, and some, you're, and John's right. Some some drivers have complained that it feels a little cold. It doesn't have much spirit to it. Yeah, yeah um, there's sometimes a the case. There's a reduced sort of uh, connection to the road in this vehicle as well. I think that, I mean, from my experience, it is. Um, it but, makes it. I mean, it makes it easy to drive. I mean, it's point and shoot. I mean, because the all-wheel drive system and the, the very good grip, uh, it doesn't seem to be able to do anything wrong. Now, even though we like to make, we like to think ourselves that we get uh, loaned amazing, uh, sleek performances cars all the time. We do a lot of evaluation of, of family cars and those type of things, and it's it's very rarely that a car comes along that we get to drive that does zero to sixty, you know, three seconds or quicker. Uh, but you can hit it every time out of this. I mean, I know that uh, in my little tests that I was able to hit 60 miles an hour almost like a freeway on-ramp almost instantaneously. It's just no trouble whatsoever. And you can do that on a freeway on-ramp that's curving. I mean, and that's the amazing thing is it doesn't seem to even lean in the corners. It just, uh, it's just, it's built for the track. And, you know, it's it would be, if you had to drive this car every day, though, while it would be fun in some cases, if you have to sit in traffic or if it's, uh, you know, if your commute is over bumpy roads, things like that, it may get old. I did. Uh, so I, I don't know that this would make a great everyday car or some of the other cars that have similar performance could do that. When I had this vehicle uh, the same week, I had the Toyota Supra. And people were coming by and stopping and walking my, down my driveway to take pictures of the GTR Track Edition and not the Supra, which was very hurtful to me because I actually think the Supra was a really—you <laughs> could buy four Supras pretty much for the price. You could buy a GTR Track Edition. 
So now we have the... I think the GTR still, it's, it still feels like it's in a video game. I mean, and for people that have, they're still somewhat rare. You don't see them a lot on the road. This particular one was red with black wheels and a black spoiler, so it really stood out. And I also had the same thing. I had people behind me uh, in other cars with their cell phones out taking pictures of it. So now we have the GTR Crack Edition, and we have the GTR Nismo, which is another $65,000. Is the Nismo worth $65,000 more than the Track Edition? I don't think it is anymore, because until 20... Last year, the Nismo was the most powerful version, and the Track Edition was less power. Uh, for 2020, they've actually put the same engine in both. So you get the 600-horsepower GTR for either one, uh, I'm not certain that the Nismo would be worthwhile. And honestly, I don't know that the track edition with 600 horsepower is that much better than the standard GTR with what is 560, I think, or so. 565 uh, for the standard. Right. I mean, for the average driver, the average driver or even the person who fancies themselves a really good driver, I don't know that you're going to notice that extra 35 horse. Uh, and and the question is, obviously they're refining and refining and refining these motors. Is this going to be the end? The six hundred horsepower, or are they going to be up to seven? And it's a two seater, by the way, and and it's half the weight of something well, like a, ch a Challenger. So it's it's deathly quick on the road. It is. There's no question. I mean, and, and it stands out with styling wise as well. I mean, there isn't anything on the road that looks like it, uh, and it doesn't look like your typical very angled, slanted exotic. So there, it definitely stands out. It's something unique, something interesting. Uh, it's a Nissan. It's going to be reliable. Uh, and it's, it is a blast. You know, like I think I've put in my review that, you know, every engine tramp just puts a smile on your face. Perry Stern is from uh, our auto expert, and he also contributes to MSN Autos. Uh, Perry, uh, will we be able to read a review of this on our auto expert? It is up there. Absolutely. Go take a look. All right. Thank you, Perry. Coming up, we're going to get to talk about the brand new uh, Suburban, which was just released in a time of green cars. Is it a good idea? We'll find out next. You're listening to the Our Auto Expert Podcast. All right. Well, if you want to catch up uh, on previous episodes of the show, you know to go to the website. If you want to have a communication with us, you can go to Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look up Our Auto Expert and start a conversation with us. Our conversation in this break of the show, John Vincent sitting in for Jen today from U.S. News and World Report. John is here throughout the show. Uh, John, there there are some unveilings going on this year. Uh, it's it's one of the vehicles that gets probably refreshed every 10, 12 years or so is a new Chevy Suburban and a Chevrolet Tahoe, uh, which means soon to follow will be GMC versions of those vehicles will happen. Yep, these uh, are the big Chevy SUVs, the Suburban Tahoe. Pretty soon we'll see the uh, GMC Yukon and then the Cadillac Escalade. So the Escalade, by the way, looks like some pictures of that leaked out over the weekend. Um, that I, I've seen on the internet. I don't know if they're real, could be fake, but uh, people posting them on social media showing uh, what, you know, someone took a picture in the factory of it coming off the line, which I'm sure made Cadillac extremely happy. The, uh, the Suburban, however, the front seems to be going in line with their design, and both of us don't think it's as stimulating as it could be. It looks much like their pickup truck design with uh, some interesting headlights and uh, a lot of grill. I do like uh, the honeycomb grill option that they have. Not sure what trim level that will be available on. 
Uh, one of the things that truck companies are doing now with all of their vehicles is uh, every different trim level. Toyota do it too with every uh, every trim level of their vehicles. Every trim level gets a different grill. So you should be able to look at the grill and know what trim level of the vehicle it is. Uh, there are some slats. Uh, there's four slat grill, which is sort of slat grill is what I would consider a standard style grill. And then there's some displayed pictures of a honeycomb grill um, up front, which we don't know again what trim levels they will be on. I'm not unhappy with the way the front looks but i think um it's not necessarily to me a stimulating maybe it'll grow on me it kind of looks like a you know 0.5 version of the last generation like they changed it some but they didn't want to stray too far it you know it looks it looks fine they'll they'll still still sell a ton of them so these are based on the silverado and the silverado heavy duty silverado um, so the Suburban is sort of the three-row plus a full-size trunk, and the Tahoe is a three-row without the full-size trunk. Although the big news for the Tahoe is that in the current version, the space behind the third row was pretty much useless. Right. I mean, you could take a bunch of people to the airport. You couldn't take their luggage. Right. Now they've increased that uh, space by 66% behind the third row, right. which is so huge. At least you can get a suitcase in there. You can get a few suitcases in there. And the Suburban seemed... Uh, strangely long to me and it's even longer right uh will it fit in the garage a suburban will not fit in a standard garage and i'm not sure that the new tahoe will the new tahoe is seven inches longer than the old generation um most people who buy versions of this vehicle will buy them once every 12 years and that's troubling for automakers because what ends up happening in that period of time is they find things they don't like about their vehicle the longer you have it the le- the you know the less things you like about your vehicle it tends to be and so people can change brands there is of course the Ford Expedition uh, there's probably going to be a new Land Cruiser at some point in the future there are other car companies coming out with these vehicles so Chevy are probably pretty desperate to hold on to their customers well that's what happened to Cadillac with the Escalade the Escalade has been out for so long that people have been fleeing the Escalade for the Navigator and the Mercedes GLS, even the Infiniti QX56, because there hasn't hasn't been a updated option in the GM lineup. So uh, it's probably a QX80 now, isn't it? QX80. Yes. It's always hard. We can't get the nomenclature right. Uh, Infinity's changed it, and, and we've been struggling to remember what everything means. Can't we just go back to names? Right. Well, you know, Lincoln, that's that's one of Lincoln's beauty. Lincoln is, Cadillac apparently is in the future. Okay, I mean, that's good because I think people, you know, numbers to me mean less. They mean less. Much better to have a car. I love the fact that Lincoln have the Corsair, which is the same size as the Ford Escape, uh, but this is their version of the modern Corsair, which was a car, of course, at Ford at one point. But uh, they rebirthed the name the Corsair. Ford has some spectacular names in their history that they can bring back. Oh, just Zephyr. I'd love to see a Zephyr. And I, you know what? The MKZ, which is Lincoln's car, I wonder, because I think that comes next year, the new version of that. I wonder if the sedan will be the Zephyr because they're changing to names. Ooh, I'd that love would be that. great. I'd love that. Somebody said that, uh, you know, their next electric sedan should be the Galaxy. Ooh, ooh, that was good. Because the Mach-E wasn't that exciting for Ford. I mean, you know, there was the Mach 1, which was the sort of Mustang performance car, but the Mach-E, oh, I kind of like that. Now I'm excited to see what names. I know that uh, we knew that the Corsair was coming way before it came, and we didn't know what kind of vehicle it would be because they had rebirthed the name. Exciting to see old vehicle names rebirthed. All right, still to come on the show, we are going to touch bases with Acura. 
and find out about uh, their vehicles that were shown off at the LA Auto Show, the Type S concept and the MDX PMC. Plus, uh, Mini debuted an electric vehicle at the LA Auto Show. We'll talk to Mini about that. And Bridgestone have a new system of not curbing your bus. That's coming up on the show. You're listening to Our Auto Expert. Welcome back to the show. Uh, it's locally celebrated and nationally created. This is from the northwest and the southeast, America's car radio show. If it has a throttle, we'll feature it on air, online, on mobile, or on smart speaker. This is our auto expert. I'm your host, Nick Miles. Sitting in uh, the co-host seat today, John Vincent from U.S. News and World Report is our guest. And we have the privilege of Matt Sloster joining us on the phone from Acura to talk a little bit about the vehicles that were on display at this year's L.A. Auto Show. Now, it's the first time that Acura's Type S concept car has graced the floor of an auto show. What was the reaction from the journalists and public, Matt, when they got to see, touch, smell, and feel the car for the first time? Well, you know, I think styling is what everyone reacts to when they see a concept, and uh, we couldn't have been more thrilled with the reaction. The the Type S concept, it's long, it's low, it's wide, it screams performance, and I think... uh, People are really excited to see Acura back in the performance vehicle game. You have a bit of a reputation for bringing vehicles out that are concepts, and then the final car is uh, almost every screw is identical. There's usually a few things on concepts that don't legally make it into production, but uh, pretty close to production. So how close is the Type S concept to the production vehicle? Well, really, this is a styling exercise that um, is supposed to set the design direction for the turn of Type S performance variants to the lineup in the coming years. And we're bringing back, actually, two Type S performance variants uh, to the lineup. Um, It's been around 10 years since Acura has had a a true performance variant, so it's been a while. Um, But what we are saying is that the Type S concept sets the design direction and will heavily influence the character of the upcoming next-generation Acura TLX. So you'll see this design heavily influence uh, the next generation uh, TLX. I can promise you uh, we will bring door handles back. <laughs> but, but we just, but we really just want to see the concept come to the road yeah. just like it is. Can you do that for us, please, Matt? Uh, I, I will put it in a good word. <laughs> the, uh... No, in all seriousness, um, the, the, what, what, what I can tell you is that the stance of the car is what really defines, I think, styling. And, and when you see a car you like, I think what you're reacting to is the overall proportion um, uh, and the stance. And in terms of the car having a long dash to axle ratio, um, being very low, very wide, um, that character um, is what we want to infuse into production cars. We all want cars that look like they should be in some kind of uh, movie, some kind of sort of futuristic movie. And I think this definitely looks like it. One of the directions that you guys have started to take, and this car is no exception, is you've started to do some uh, pretty cool paint treatments on your vehicles. That, that's right. Yeah, we put a um, basically 99% of the cars we make and sell or excuse me, 99% of the cars we sell in North America are actually made in Ohio, central Ohio. And we actually had a new paint facility uh, installed recently. And uh, every new minor model change and major model change, we're introducing a, uh, a number of new pearlescent paints um, that, that really make the car stand out. The first thing you see on a car is the paint, and it has a dramatic impact. So we're really proud of um, the steps forward we've made there. It uses a, two, a 2K clear coat is what we call it which gives the car a very rich um, uh, look. Um, 
it gets fluidity. Um, the car looks different in different light settings, and and yeah, it's, it's something that really makes the car stand out. So the other car that was actually debuted at the uh, LA Auto Show was a version of your best-selling luxury three-row SUV, the MDX, and you, you gave that a bit of a treatment too, didn't you? We did. So um, when we introduced the NSX, the NSX Supercar, second-generation NSX Supercar in 2016, um, that was an ambitious project for us, not only because it's a, a hybrid supercar, but because we needed to build an entire manufacturing facility specifically to build the bespoke supercar. So we were um, essentially creating a, an all-new supercar and creating an all-new plant to build that supercar at the same time. Um, and while that plant, the Performance Manufacturing Center in Ohio, uh, is designed around the NSX, the idea was always how can we leverage that um, small batch manufacturing capability and infuse that capability into other vehicles. And so what you're seeing with these PMC editions, and we started with the TLX and now the MDX, is us really dipping our toe uh, into small batch manufacturing. There's just going to be 330 of them. Uh, they are finished in Valencia Red Pearl. Uh, which is an Enduro paint. It's it's literally the finest paint we've ever put on a production car. It's concept car quality paint that you can buy in the showroom. Uh, and that NBX PMC edition uh, is going to start to hit showrooms in February. What's the secret of the longevity of the MDX? Because uh, I remember driving the Super Handling all-wheel drive at a Northwest Mudfest event in uh, mm-hmm. in Washington at Dirtfish probably about seven seven years ago, and it was being the most outstanding car I've ever driven uh, on that particular track just because it handles so well. But people are buying it because it meets their needs for other things apart from handling, and it still is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the best-selling three-row luxury SUV in America, right? Uh, yeah, it's the best-selling three-row of all time, actually, um, and and we've just surpassed a million units sold since the first model in, in 2001. And I think, um, you know, it, it's tough to put put a, a definitive finger on it, but I think what it is is the car was designed to be a three-row from the get-go uh, uh, from 2001 on, um, and so it offers um, um, a, a third row that for children is, is um, you know, a great a great um, uh, value add if, if you're a family. But the car hasn't grown too much in size. So if you still drive it around a city, for example, or an urban setting, um, it's comfortable to drive. And, and like you said, uh, it's got all of that um, great practical ability. Um, but when you get it out on a, on a twisty road with super handling all-wheel drive, it's still quite fun to drive. So I think it's that combination of practical um, and then exhilarating that makes it stand out in the category. Um, obviously, your competitors in the premium segment are working hard at uh, trying to match what you do with different things. So what's in Acura's future? What are you looking to do as time moves forward? What other vehicles are you looking to, uh, you know, w- what is humankind waiting to see from Acura? So the last uh, four or five years for Acura, since the introduction of the NSX, have been all about our returning to precision-crafted performance. Um, and that's not just a marketing tagline for us. Um, what we are saying is that performance is the North Star for the brand. Uh, when we launched Acura in 1987, um, Integra, NSX, Legend, those were the cars that defined Acura. And, and what people remember about those cars is, is performance and an exhilarating driving experience. And so for us, we're returning to those roots. Um, we're at the cusp of um, a lot of activity for the, for the brand. 2020 is going to be um, a major year for us. Uh, really, the, the RDX, the third-generation RDX, which we launched in summer 2019, 
that's the first in a new generation of models for us um, that is indicative of what we want to do uh, with all of our full model changes that are coming up. Uh, and that car um, has done uh, exceptionally well in the market. It offers, uh, I, I think, um, a distinctive design without being too polarizing. Um, and, and that's competing in a segment where um, really the shape of all the cars is more or less the same. So with surface treatment, you have to try to differentiate. Um, and then it's got um, a class-leading powertrain, a great 2-liter turbo, and a 10-speed automatic. So if you look at the RDX and see what we've done there, and then you look at our lineup, um, we're going to uh, inject that same passion that we put into the RDX into the other cars in our lineup, and then we're going to be adding the performance Type S variants on top of that. So really now's um, a, a really exciting time for Acura. Uh, we have exceptional brand loyalty. Um, customers come back to us, and I think when they come back to us uh, uh, with their lease returns in the coming years, they're going to be pretty pleased with uh, our, our new generation of models. Are we going to see the uh, infotainment system from the RDX move into other Acura models? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, designing an infotainment system um, is as intense as, as engineering a complete vehicle in some respects, and that was always intended to disperse across the lineup. Um, uh, it will continue to be uh, enhanced. Um, we've already pushed three over-the-air updates to the RDX um, that, that corrected bugs um, but also added new features. We recently just pushed uh, Android Auto to the car a month or two ago. Um, so you'll see as we roll it out into future models um, that it'll be tweaked slightly and then continue to enhance over the ownership cycle, which is something that um, people really want from their cars. One of the experiences that uh, you know Acura tries to give is uh, the experience of not only a you know comfortable, safe driving experience um, at the same time as performance, which we've talked about. But John sort of touched on it. Uh, you went out of your way to find Elliot Elliot Schreiner, who was the guy that produced uh, Smashing Pumpkins and Steely Dan, and he mm-hmm. sat he sat in the car and honestly to sit in the car with him and just talk to him about. The, what the sound of the car means and where the speaker should be placed and those sort of things was uh, was quite a big job and if and if anybody has never experienced the RDX sound system, uh, you should you should go and sit in the car and experience that too. How how important is the overall ownership experience to you? Yeah, uh, it, it's absolutely critical. I mean, from the moment um, a consumer is exposed to your brand. Uh, you know, on TV and a commercial, or they engage with you at an auto show, all the way through to when they own a car and they return to a dealer. You want that experience to be distinct, um, exceptional, and and what we try to say is um, zero delay. You know, meet people's needs uh, uh, before they even know they have a need. Um, and 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 really, we want every experience to be unique. And it, it's funny you you mentioned the audio system um, that that Elliot and his team designed. But, you know, when you're driving, some of the most memorable moments you have while driving are listening to a favorite song. And so that is is really uh, critical that you have great audio in a car. And, you know, I go around and and talk to um, uh, our our sales associates and dealers and and turning on the stereo and seeing what it sounds like is uh, an absolute game changer. And it's something that can make a, a customer purchase a car or not. Um, uh, just because it's, you know, it's an emotional experience driving and listening to music. This is not new to the RDX. I'm an owner of a 2009 RDX, and the audio system in it is, is phenomenal for the era, and it's one of the reasons yep. that the new RDX is on my shortlist. Yeah, it's, it's uh, what we call it a, a studio-quality sound in a vehicle. 
Um, and, you know, I've talked to Elliot a lot about this, but um, in a car, uh, it's a challenging environment with which to work on audio because you have weight constraints, packaging constraints, um, electrical power constraints. So there's a lot of constraints, but you also can place the speakers exactly where you want them, and you know exactly where the driver is going to be seated um, and the passengers are going to be seated and, and where their ears are. So you can put the sound stage right where you want it. Um, and, and, you know, what I love about our systems, just practically speaking, is you can turn the volume all the way up and it's still clear audio. You're not going to hear the bass give out um, uh, or the audio distort. So it's a hi-fi experience as loud as you really want it. Um, and and in, the, in the RDX with the 3D sound system, what we've done is place speakers um, in the headliner and it's an industry first. And because our company and our engineers are so good at packaging, we're able to put it up there while still giving you sufficient headroom. And that elevates the soundstage right up to, to um, the level that your ears are at. It's kind of like the latest generation of Dolby Atmos systems in home theater um, that try to elevate the soundstage. And it's, it's really quite exceptional, especially if you um, play hi-fi, uh, high-fidelity music through it, which you can actually stream now on Spotify and some of the other tools. All right, Matt. Well, it sounds like you've got a lot of good stuff coming up in the future. Give me a, a time when we might see a uh, an unveiling of a, t- a new Type a- a S. Is that going to be in the next year, 18 months, sooner? Well, I'm, I am. Uh, we're going to do two Type S variants in the next two years. Um, but I'll tell you, I'm really looking forward to this break uh, because we're going to be busy next year. All right. We're looking forward to it. Matt from uh, Acura with a whole bunch of information about what's coming up in the next year. Still coming up on the show here this morning. We're going to get a chance to talk about the new Mini Electric with one of the guys that packaged it for the United States, Patrick McKenna, joining us for Mini. Plus, we're going to talk about this new cool uh, system where you can park your bus without scratching its tires. Because we all have buses, right? That's coming up. You're listening to the R Auto Expert Podcast. Locally created, nationally celebrated from the northwest and the southeast, this is America's Car Radio Show. If it has a throttle, we'll feature it on air, online, on mobile, or on smart speaker. This is our auto expert. I'm your host, Nick Miles. John Vincent sitting in the co-host seat for today from U.S. News and World Report. Uh, you know I'm a fan of the mini brand, and I enjoy uh, I'm on my second mini right now. I enjoy it because... Uh, it's got a million and one things, but it's like being on a fairground ride every time I take it out. It's that much fun to drive. Well, a Mini revealed at the LA Auto Show. Uh, first time they put it on the floor of an auto show was their electric version of the Mini, uh, which is even more exciting because uh, hopefully it'll have a lot more talk and a lot more fun. But to hear, to tell us a little more about the possibility of owning one of these in the future from Mini himself, Patrick McKenna, uh, Pat the mini electric did it get good reception in la from the journalists and from those visiting the stand absolutely great to be with you the what was pleasantly surprising for me is the journalists who really focus on electric only they are probably some of the most optimistic because they think it's a perfect use case uh the car a lot of them had experience from 10 years ago from the test pilot we did with a car called the Mini E, so they're thrilled to see the car back, and they're really uh, excited about the value proposition at twenty nine thousand nine hundred as the starting price. And and if you live in Oregon, you can get that for ten thousand dollars less. 
because Oregon has crazy incentives, and then there's the federal incentive, which I presume you're you're a long way from hitting your cap of the federal incentives, right? Yeah, thankfully we still have some time, so we're uh, available for the full seven thousand five hundred dollar federal, and then you have state credits, which uh, are in many states these days, uh, which are anywhere from five hundred dollars to four thousand. And uh, and you also have fuel savings on top of that. So, you know, it, we compare it to a regular Cooper S hardtop gas powered, and um, you know that can be as much as like three thousand seven hundred dollars, uh, averaging ten thousand miles a year for about six years. So, you know, you could do the math and what your your mileage is, but it's it's really compelling. So the car gets under twenty thousand when you really factor all these elements in. Is the car going to be sold in all 50 states? All 50 states. Uh, what we're doing is kind of a unique uh, reservation system that actually opens up in the next few days. So we're going to timestamp everyone making a reservation. It's a $500 down payment. That's at miniusa.com or shopminiusa.com. And it's putting $500 down uh, on the uh, on the model, and then we'll follow up with calls from dealers to organize the transaction. So, how does the timestamp work when it goes from the first person to you know on down the list that made the reservation? So, it doesn't matter what state you live in. Like in Tesla, you get your car in California. You used to get it first, but that's different uh, with the way you do it. Yeah, it's it's a it's an equal opportunity system. We decided to really make it available in all fifty states at all dealers. Uh, we're also doing that on a, another model, the GP, and it's working quite well. And it's a good way to get, really get the cars to where the customers are. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the vehicle. Uh, apart from fuel saving and buying it for under $20,000, what else is it going to give us? So the nice thing about this car is even the entry-level car has a lot of standard equipment. So LED headlights, navigation, car play, Comfort access, which is keyless entry, heated seats, uh, and it has DC fast charging, so it can do an 80% charge in about 35 minutes. Well, that's not bad. Uh, distance is about is is over 100 miles on a single charge of this, which is uh, you know is turning out to be less than a lot of people would need. Uh, the, you know, it's going to be hard for someone to use 100 miles unless they're doing long journeys. Uh, the average American commute in daily is about 20 miles, so uh, that's almost five days of uh, round trips there. And then you just park it at, at your work, and you'll have it fully charged in the day, which is kind of cool as well. Uh, what's the performance like? Because we We've been talking on this show today, Pat, about how much fun electric cars can be with all that immediate torque and no gearbox. It puts everything down on the road instantaneously, so you can do those amazing starts in the vehicle. Have you got to to, to slam one on the track yet? I have, and it's fantastic. It's uh, you know, first and foremost, every every Mini is fun to drive. It's actually the number one reason why people buy Minis, and this car really actually goes a step further even than the other cars because it has a lower center of gravity which just gives you it just sticks to the pavement it's 181 horsepower 199 pound feet of torque but uh, the numbers I don't think do it justice because it just has that immediate torque and it also has two-stage regenerative braking so you truly when you come off the accelerator 
you know, your head kind of throws forward because it has aggressive uh, regeneration, which saves the battery, but it's also, it allows you to kind of have one pedal driving, and it's really fun. But we allow that you can kind of do that two-mode switch if, if you don't want it so aggressive. I want you to invite me to go drag race it. I, yeah, think we, I, I think I think we should do it. Loads of fun, right? I think we should do a mini drag race. You could, you know, all the journalists. You could get everyone together when you do the launch of this vehicle and a drag strip, and just see who can get the fastest drag time. Because you know it's going to be thrilling. It's going to be fun, my dear. I don't know what state. And also autocross. Oh I yeah. Think, you know, I almost want to secretly enter it into like a little autocross. Because uh, I think it would absolutely shine in that situation as well. You're giving me dangerous ideas, Pat. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna go buy cones when the show is over today and see what I can do when I get I get a hold of one. Uh, when are we looking at uh, so ordering opens in the next uh, few days? And when are we looking at uh, delivery of these? So we're starting deliveries in March of next year. So that's why the the pre-ordering system kind of lines the customers up. And the ideal situation is you custom build them uh, to your exact liking. Uh, And on the entry-level model, um, what we call signature, it's just choose the color. And the nice thing is these cars, the battery comes with an eight-year warranty. So it's definitely uh, a great selling feature for, for someone interested in the long haul. I can't wait. I did get uh, the opportunity, or I'm going to get the opportunity to go drive it in Miami soon. So I'll be joining you there, and maybe you and I could just, you know, find a drag strip somewhere and uh, have some fun with it. Uh, Pat, uh, thanks for joining us. Mini uh, is the the brand's website. If you want to go look at this vehicle or find out more, miniusa.com. I have owned a couple of Minis, and I will tell you, I'm sold already. The Electra's going to be a bunch of the fun. Uh, Look for it turning up, and you can mark and you can order one uh, in the next few days. More to come on Our Auto Expert, and it's going to be electric, I promise you. You're listening to Our Auto Expert. Welcome back to the show. Uh, you can catch up with previous episodes of the show at our website, ourautoexpert.com. You can hear all those past shows, see automotive videos from our Fox Sports show, and also read Inside a Car stories at your, on your next ride. You'll find it all at ourautoexpert.com. Sitting in the co-host chair today, John Vincent from US News and World Report. Um, I had an opportunity on a recent trip to the Tokyo Olympics to see a lot of really interesting stuff that's coming to the Tokyo Olympics in the summer of 2020. And uh, I'm standing in the middle of this parking lot in Japan looking at all these crazy cars. I get a tap on the shoulder from a friend of mine who happens to be doing PR for Bridgestone and said, I have something cool to show you. First of all, surprise, I'm in Japan too. But second of all, uh, she took me over and she showed me some of the new Bridgestone stuff that is coming to the Olympics in 2020. And it was uh, mind-blowing in a sense because I couldn't get my head around uh, how cool this was and I didn't also realize that uh, when you drive a bus up to a curb how many problems that can create for uh, shredding tires on the curb wall and it seems to be a real problem and then the, the the height of the curb for people getting in and out especially with bicycles or wheelchairs uh, that was very difficult you usually have to step into the road and then step onto the bus and so I, I started paying more attention to this as time went on and I've been uh, driving around when I see a bus stop in front of me watching the people sort of step off the curb and step into the bus and they always stop so far away from the curb well uh, privilege 
privilege to have uh, TJ Higgins join us on the phone. He is the president over at Bridgestone, and you guys have invented something called Plus Stop Barrierless Curb System, which is what I saw in Japan. And far be it from me, a layman, to explain how it works. Maybe, TJ, you can give us the, the synopsis of why you invented this and, and what it actually does. Well, Nick, thank you very much for having me on, and thank you for recognizing this new technology. Uh, so what we at Bridgestone were doing is we, in conjunction with, um, with other partners, including academic institutions and the government, we recognized that there really were problems with the way that uh, folks would be getting on and off a bus uh, standing at a curb. There were inefficiencies in how the system worked. There were areas of potential safety concern. As you just said, people might have to step down and then back up. And then, of course, there's difficulty for those with, uh, with, with uh, wheelchairs or uh, other types of physical air, uh, challenges that might need to have a simpler way of getting on and off a bus. So in working with Yokohama National uh, University, Bridgestone engineers found a way to design the slope of the curb so that it interacts a little bit more seamlessly with the tire. We'd also say by having this slope of the curve change, uh, curb change, the shape of the tire then and the sidewall would have less vibration, less wear. So there's an in addition to having a benefit to, uh, you know, of course, safety and uh, efficiency for the bus system. So it was a great partnership. And now, uh, the Tokyo Olympic Committee has thought, hey, this is a great opportunity for us to build new technology into our athletes' village. So we're going to have 32 bus stops within the athletes' village where we're going to test out this barrierless system and see what the new opportunities can be to create efficiency in transportation. Occasionally, it's not at the front of our mind, but of course, uh, along with the uh, regular Olympics comes the Paralympics, and many of those people who take part in the Paralympics are in wheelchairs. And currently, the way it works in most cities is if you want to get on and off a bus with a wheelchair or a train or anything like that, you usually have to have some kind of lift mechanism or some kind of ramp that comes out of the bus and uh, then goes on to the curb, and then you have to wheel yourself on, and the ramp is only put down once the driver recognizes that there is uh, somebody that needs to use the ramp with a wheelchair. Uh, but this sort of reduces a lot of that and, and makes it easier for everyone to get on and off, right? Absolutely it does. So you can see, and we're continuing to track the speed and efficiency with which this occurs, as well as the reduction in incidents, you know, how in, less frequently people need to you know, adjust or potentially, as you know, they can stumble or, you know, even those of us uh, that are fortunate enough not to have any physical disabilities, it can, be, it can be a little bit of a challenge watching that gap between the bus and the curb. And, you know, as mobility continues to change and as we're seeing some urbanization, not only is this a great opportunity to support uh, Olympic athletes, Paralympic athletes, and potentially elderly as well as folks with different types of needs, I think, we think at Bridgestone, there's going to be a great opportunity for us to help cities of the future drive efficiency through their, uh, through their mass transit systems. 
Was it difficult to to convince the uh, the Tokyo Metropolitan Government that this was a great idea? Because of course, you know, it, it's it's work for them to build all of these bus stops, and it's work for them to authorize them and make sure they all have to go through their safety testing as well. So to get them to change the whole way they planned uh, their their bus stops was it was that a task for you? Well, you know, um, any time that you're talking about infrastructure change, there were many considerations. Um, certainly timing, cost, um, confidence in the system. But we found that the government was very open. In fact, we actually have started this system already. There are six locations in Okayama, Japan, that have already adopted this system. And that's where uh, the Tokyo Metropolitan Government saw some of the promise of the system and thought, okay, while we're updating for the Olympic um, Athlete Village, this is a great opportunity for us to actually get quantitative proof of the safety improvements and the efficiency improvements of a system like this. So I would say, you know, as always, any government agency should very appropriately be conservative in how they think about bringing new technology to their to their population. But I think they've been very progressive in thinking about this, and uh, the Yokohama National University team was also very progressive in working with us. So uh, I think it was a great collaboration, and it's, it's one of the things we're very proud of. You know, our mission is to serve society with superior quality, and this allows us a great uh, demonstrable effort to show what we can do together working with academics, uh, government partnerships, and, of course, private industry. Are there any modifications to the bus or the tire itself that maximize the utility of the system? As of today, we're working to not make many changes to the bus. However, we are looking at our tires. Uh, there are certainly opportunities for us uh, to consider how we design sidewalls for buses. And uh, we have a very significant business in bus and trucking tire support. And, you know, it's, it's an important area of uh, the economic system to make a f- efficient uh, mobility, particularly when public transit is going to be needed more and more. So as of now, we have not adjusted the tire, but we are working with uh, these partners to find ways that as we put this system into place, should we be adjusting you know, the construction, the shaping, uh, so that we continue to have, of course, performance, quality, and safety, but maybe some efficiency gains as well. Are we going to see this in the United States? Oh, I would certainly hope so. We're going to prove it out here in uh, in this uh, great experiment in Tokyo in Tokyo 2020, and uh, we're going to be bringing, uh, along with a number of efforts that we're investing in, like to transform urban mobility, which is a very important effort that we have going on globally with a number of other major manufacturers and uh, mobility suppliers. We're trying to figure out how we bring it to Europe, to the United States, other places. We think there's great application uh, and it's, it's good for people, it's good for costs and efficiencies, and of course, uh, over time, it's good for safety. I have to tell you that uh, I've been very impressed with a couple of things that you've done. I got to drive uh, two vehicles in the snow in Colorado a few years ago, one which with, was that with sort of regular tire, winter tires, one which had Blizzex tires on uh, from Bridgestone, and when I slammed on the brakes, it shot me uh, uh, stopping in about th- a third of the time that I had expected to it to work so uh, you guys are, are doing good work the only thing i want you to do is make tires that aren't only in black 
That's that's the one oh. thing I'm begging for. I, I want to see tires in all different colors like the, to match the car. Uh, TJ, hey, thanks for spending some time with us today. I'm very uh, honored that you uh, gave up some of your weekend to talk to us. An impressive new system that you have going on there in 2020. We'll look for a change and the ease of use in bus stops all over the United States because I think you've actually stumbled onto something that could really help society move forward and make life easier for many people as well. Still got a packed show still to come on the show today. We've got Anton Warman who's going to talk to us about what's changing in electric vehicles, uh, what's coming up, what the future is, and also what's going on with Tesla. That's all coming up as our auto expert continues. You're listening to the Our Auto Expert Podcast. Welcome back to the show. Uh, this week's show, you can contact us as every week on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Start a conversation with us and ourautoexpert.com. You can catch up on previous episodes of the show at the website. You can listen to them by downloading them as a podcast, or you can read stories and also see the videos from our appearances on television stations all over the country, plus our Fox Sports show. Our Auto Expert is the name of the website. You put a little .com at the end of that. John Vincent from US News and World Report, co-hosting with us this week, Jen is off for a couple of weeks around the holiday season uh, and joining us as he does every single week uh, to talk about what's going on in the uh, automotive world and ex- specifically with finance and technology. Also looking forward to uh, what's going on with EVs and autonomous vehicles, Anton Woolman. You can read his stuff at Seeking Alpha or The Street. He's an independent analyst and investor. Uh, Mercedes-Benz delays the U.S. sale date for the EQC by a whopping full year now at the LA Auto Show we thought it was just around the corner but now it looks like it's going to be at least a year away that's right so they blame this situation on a most fortunate situation from them for Europe they say which is that Europe is simply showing a lot more demand for the Mercedes EQC than they had somehow previously anticipated of course there are no specific numbers to go along with this thing so you would have to take their word for it, and I rarely take any company's word for anything, and this is probably no exception to that. But bottom line is, Mercedes says that the demand for their Mercedes EQC all-electric C-Class SUV is so high in Europe that they've been essentially forced to delay the U.S. market introduction from early 2020 to early 2021. Is there a reasonable number that we can estimate that they will sell of this vehicle uh, in Europe or in the United States? Absolutely not. The company has stayed completely away from uh, providing any numbers whatsoever, ranging from production capacity to orders, interest level, web clicks, you name it. The company has simply not said a peep about any specific numbers on which we can hang our hat here. So we are completely fumbling in the dark as to what this means, which also conveniently makes their explanation of high demand in Europe impossible to refute. Let's talk a little bit about where this car stacks up against the competition because this is a space that's starting to get a little uh, competitive. Audi has a vehicle in this space. There's obviously been a Tesla out for a while. Now there's going to be a new uh, Ford marquee. So who are the competitors in the space of the EQC and what sort of range uh, are they competing against? So the two most direct competitors against the Mercedes EQC are the Jaguar I-Pace and the Audi e-tron. 
both of those two are available with slightly larger battery sizes than the Mercedes. Remember, both the um, Audi and the Jaguar have batteries that are at or just a hair above 90 kilowatt hours. Mercedes comes to market with an 80 kilowatt hour version. And Audi has just made available this month in Europe only a uh, lighter, smaller version that has about, I think it's a 71 kilowatt hour version that just went on sale in Europe in the last couple of weeks. And uh, we have been seeing in the registration columns that we get daily from some European numbers that those sales uh, have begun. So Mercedes sits roughly in the same pot there as their Jaguar and uh, Audi competitors. You don't put Tesla Model X in that competitive set? You know, I I don't exactly put it there. And in practice, does it compete? Yes, of course it competes. But if you look at this from a traditional automotive segment standpoint, the Tesla is a slightly different creature. Unlike the Audi, Mercedes, and Jaguar, the Tesla is a far larger vehicle that has an available third row of seating, which, while not standard, uh, usually means that automotive journalists such as us tends to put it in a different class. It is simply a taller, longer, and, and uh, in most cases, heavier vehicle. So the Tesla is simply uh, larger. Which one of these vehicles is uh, doing the best in performance, right, in, in sales performance right now that we can estimate? Right now, there's no question about the fact that the Audi is knocking uh, the socks out of the other players in the market. Uh, I was just going over the other day the statistics from the Netherlands, where uh, Tesla sold close to sorry 3,000 Model Xs in 2018, and Jaguar also sold about 3,000 iPaces in 2018. Uh, both of those two companies have seen uh, their sales decline by a whopping approximately 90%, believe it or not, Nick, 90% decline for both Tesla and Jaguar in the Netherlands for those luxury models in the year 2019 as compared to 2018. And Audi, of course, went from zero to uh, they're outselling those two guys by by about two two, two to one combined this year so far. All right, coming up, we'll talk about Jeep taking orders for their first plug-in hybrid. Anton Warman with it on the phone. We'll be right back. You're listening to Our Auto Expert. Welcome back to the show. Uh, start the conversation on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can find us at Our Auto Expert, or you can find me, Nick, N-I-K-J-M-I-L-E-S. Uh, and John is Oregon's car guy. John Vincent sitting in with us from U.S. News and World Report. On the phone with us, Anton Wallman. He is an independent analyst and investor. We're talking about changes in business and technology and in autonomy in the auto industry. Jeep starts taking orders for its first plug-in hybrid in Europe for 2020. When will we see it in the United States? Well, Nick, as with Mercedes, uh, the clear case here for Jeep is that their requirements to meet the European mandates for calendar year 2020 are likely to completely overwhelm the company's ability to deliver these vehicles in the United States in the short term. So I would not bet a dime on the notion that any of the three plug-in hybrid Jeeps that are going on sale in Europe in calendar year 2020 
will be available in the United States until probably well into 2021. That would be my best assessment at this point. But Jeep has at this point not said a peep about the matter. You may uh, notice, Nick, that Jeep hasn't even really communicated to U.S. journalists pretty much at all anything about their plans for their plug-in hybrid portfolio, whether in Europe, the U.S., or otherwise. Uh, It's a relative radio silence there, unless I've missed something. Uh, Would you say the same, Nick? Yeah, no, I think uh, it's been uh, uneasily quiet on that front. And even when I've questioned executives about the vehicle, I've got shut down almost immediately. Um, There's a clear policy of non-communication about anything on that level as well. Ultimately, too, what makes my head scratch is why Europe would be a priority for them unless they had numbers that they had to meet in Europe for, uh, for energy and for fuel efficiency. It seems strange that they would abandon their home market so much with a vehicle that could be adopted by so many more people that didn't feel like the gasoline or diesel Jeep was something that they wanted. Well, actually, I heard some... The silence silence from Jeep notwithstanding, I'm pretty confident about the answer. And that answer is indeed that uh, the European uh, fuel mandate for 2020 is a democulous sword on top of uh, Jeep right now. And these vehicles are urgently needed in the European market, starting when this uh, mandate kicks in here for calendar year 2020, and therefore European Europe will get essentially the entire priority of their production capacity on all of these models, the Compass, the Renegade, and also the uh, Wrangler plug-in hybrid. So that is uh, my distinct theory, and I think that should be our working assumption for the foreseeable future. I heard a very similar um, take on it from Kia this week, is that as Europe moves away from diesel, they need to have these electric vehicles available in Europe, and it's absorbing all of their capacity to do so. Uh, They don't want to lose market share because they don't have a vehicle that can slide in to take the place of a diesel vehicle. That's correct. I mean, the European mandate for 2020 is rather draconian, and it will require enormous losses on behalf of all the automakers there to vastly subsidize both their pure electric Uh, vehicles as well as a portfolio of uh, plug-in hybrids that, by the way, get a lot less credit over there than pure electrics uh, in order to uh, not get hit with uh, really draconian fines. Now, with Boris Johnson winning the election in the United Kingdom and Conservatives now having a majority in the House of Parliament, it looks like the Brexit is going to move much faster than it has been over the last two and a half years. Uh, The UK exiting Brexit, will that change their automotive policy and perhaps open up uh, a little bit more of the automotive policy there, meaning less environmentally friendly cars? Well, so far, I have not seen a single concrete proposal from that end that would actually change any of these policies that we just discussed. I think that the bigger question as regards to Brexit is the extent to which the UK will be able to strike a free trade agreement with the EU or not, and if so, under what time frame. Keep in mind that the EU today has a 100% free trade agreement with Mexico insofar as automobiles are concerned. Right now, both uh, Mercedes and BMW and Volkswagen and Audi 
have recently, over the last couple of years, established huge factories in Mexico where they are exporting to Europe 100% tariff-free, not a penny in tariffs whatsoever. And you may ask yourself the question, how could they possibly justify that while at the same time proposing the imposition of a 10% tariffs tariff on vehicles made in the UK. That just doesn't pass the smell test. So uh, as the rubber meets the road on this, uh, this will be a very interesting debate to follow. And I think that as a result of what happened earlier this week, I think that this debate is going to be uh, rekindled here and uh, really uh, people will be seeking swift answers to this type of question just in the next few weeks. Now, uh, GM's self-driving car boss, uh, Dan uh, Manon, he penned an essay recently about the car business being crazy. So has he lost it or has the car business lost it? Well, I think this is a case of a severe uh, case of groupthink here and popularity contest in Silicon Valley. He penned a little essay on Medium that essentially said that, wow, if we were to design the uh, society from scratch, it would never have been designed the way it is. And all of these people, people for Pete's sake, driving around in their own cars and driving anywhere they want out of their own volition. And, oh, my God, what a disaster. Uh, and, wow, if we could just design the system that magically could transport everyone essentially instantaneously without any uh, traffic issues, without any traffic deaths, without any energy consumption, and without Lord knows what other, uh, other kind of fairy dust involved in the process. If you could just have this magic thing where everyone would just teleport it to their destination at the blink of an eye, wow, wouldn't that be great? Well, gee whiz, I mean, please wake up from your little dream here and uh, uh, move yourself into reality and uh, actually propose something that would actually work then, but because uh, the world has evolved the way it has for a good reason, and I think that uh, replacing it is easier said than done. So I, I really fear that he has lost it here a little bit. Uh, that is kind of my conclusion after having read his essay on the subject. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Uber, which I think is interesting. So they recently lost their license to operate in London, uh, in partially due to the report that says uh, 3,000 reports of various kinds of assault in an Uber uh, happened in the, in the last, uh, I think it was year or so. And how many of these reports uh, were serious? Uh, were they all serious? Uh, what, what's Uber's status in Europe now? Yeah, so this is very interesting. This is a classical case of a company distinctly shooting itself in the foot by uh, propagating a statistic which, when you really dig into it, means almost nothing. And I really contacted uh, Uber's PR department to get some clarification on this, and their response was a bit disappointing. What they said is that 37% of these 3,000 or so reports uh, ever yielded any contact with law enforcement at all, and this contact in citation marks uh basically we, they wouldn't they weren't willing to say how much further it went than some contact with law enforcement they weren't even willing to say that these things led to a formal police report of course after a police record report would come an investigation after an investigation would come uh, an indictment after an indictment there would be a trial date and maybe maybe in the end somebody would get convicted of an actual crime they could not offer a single example, not one, of a case that had gone to trial and led to a conviction of a single person having done something uh, that this quote-unquote report, 3,000 of them nonetheless, 
had indicated. So one really has to wonder here, why in God's green earth is Uber even saying that there are these 3,000 cases that really, when you dig into it, uh, sound very flimsy? Uh, let's talk a little bit about a couple of other things that are going on in the automotive industry because uh, I find that uh, a lot of times we don't get to go and talk about the things that I guess uh, are, are sort of fairly important and that means uh, Tesla. Yes, we're back to the old Tesla again. Uh, Fed's investigating Tesla again because of the uh, autopilot problem. Another accident with autopilot. This is number 30, is that right? Yeah, well, we've sort of uh, lost track, and oh, by the way, it's hard to define exactly what caused or didn't cause a particular incident here. So often enough, there will be something that happens, you know, basically a crash of some sort, and then there's an argument as to who is responsible, and at some point or another during this journey, the driver in question was on Tesla's autopilot or full self-driving or whatever their latest terminology is, and then an accident happened and somebody asks questions. Tesla, well, where's the data for this and what happened? Tesla will often respond by saying, well, you know, autopilot was disabled at the moment of the crash. Well, gee whiz, let me think what happened. So if you're driving around an autopilot and you're not, you're, you're doing what you're not supposed to be doing, which is your hands are off the wheel at that particular moment in time, and then suddenly the car is l- l- lurching itself into an accident-type situation, and then at the moment, right before in- impact, maybe just a fraction of a second before impact, you touch the brake pedal. And then what happens is, of course, that the system disengages itself. And then Tesla can say, well, at the moment of impact, you were not on autopilot, were you? Well, that's not exactly the point, is it? So this becomes a huge circus when only Tesla has access to the data. They're not giving it to the authorities, and the authorities have no ability to perfectly analyze what happened. But in the case of a car, uh, Tesla ramming straight into the rear end of a police car that's standing still at the side of the road, it seems pretty unambiguous as to this being a case that needs to be investigated. So that's what happened in this case. This is what happened, and the authorities here, by virtue both of uh, their own investigation and, and by our uh, various senior congressmen that got involved in the issue, are starting to look into this. And so far, almost none of these investigations have really led to anything in the end. So I don't have a whole lot of hopes that uh, this investigation will uh, yield anything fruitful either, but we shall see. Now. Tesla uh, also in the news with their truck. Uh, now it was sort of un- uncovered this week that their their battle with Ford and the F-150 uh, suddenly discovered that the Tesla truck doesn't even fall in the same class as the F-150. It actually falls in a class higher or almost higher. Uh, does this put some sort of question marks on the Tesla truck? And then also Elon has been driving it around L.A. as well. Yeah, I think it was very fascinating to see that Tesla even made this comment at all uh this seems very premature at some level they usually wouldn't give this type of detail in this type of format this early in the game i mean why would they so uh, really what happened here is that they got somehow an inquiry from some uh classification authority in california as to what will your truck that you know will be coming out at the earliest in about two years from now you know, in what class will it fall? And Tesla, of course, could have said, uh, wait a minute, uh, it hasn't been determined yet, it's too early to say, and all of that. But actually, they gave an answer, and the answer was that this would actually not be a half-ton truck like the Ford F-150 or Chevy Silverado 1500 or equivalent, but rather the equivalent of a 
Ford F250 or 350 or a uh, Chevy Silverado 2500 or 3500 instead. And that was kind of surprising, not so surprising that this is actually what it was, but that Tesla would uh, actually say this or admit this this early in the game. I found that fascinating, and I, I find no obvious explanation as to why they would give that away. But that does put uh, uh, the, this uh, towing uh, tug fest here in a slightly different light. But frankly, that uh, towing tug fest uh, is, is really rather irrelevant anyway. But the broader relevance here is really that this is going to be a uniquely heavy truck that right. really sits in a different category. Right. So uh, I think that's the conclusion. All right. And Tom Wallman, independent analyst and investor, thank you for joining us. You can read his stuff at Seeking Alpha or The Street. John Vincent from USU News and World Report. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Our Auto Expert with Nick Mile. Find all the show episodes at ourautoexpert.com. Please follow us on all social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Our Auto Expert. And message us for a quick and witty response.